Well, Harvest, I think uh, it would be quite appropriate here today for us just to express our thanks to the worship teams and the tech crew and just for all the work they've been doing. This is our third Sunday here, and I'm just so grateful for them pointing us vertical, right? I also think it's just appropriate these last three Sundays we've had, uh, three Sundays, all snow before every one of them, and the crews out there working around and uh, getting up early. Do I'm just so thankful for them, right? Um, I mean, that's, that was one of my favorite things to come in this morning, just being blessed by them, serving one another uh, for the love of the Lord, and that's really much of what our text is going at today. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians towards the end of the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. This is our second Sunday in our series through the book of Colossians called Jesus Christ Supreme. Uh, we are in verses 3 through 8 today. Uh, I want to begin with a definition, and I want to begin with a definition of what is a sentence. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is exciting stuff, man. You know, you're supposed to start out with a really, you know, drawing in thing, and it's like, here we are, definition of a sentence. <sighs> uh, I want to start with this because it is important. Definition of a sentence, just from the regular dictionary, is a word or a group of words that express a complete thought. So a word like, bam, is technically a sentence, and there's a unified thought behind that, or, you know, words together. A sentence is a group uh, that expresses a complete unified thought. Why are we talking about this today? Well, if you have, uh, depending on what version of scripture you have, if you have the uh, English Standard Version or New International Version, just raise your hand. Okay, okay, now you'll look in that, look at your text, verses 3 through 8, and you will see in there that from verses 3 through 8, there's three periods. There are three sentences in verses 3 through 8, and, and uh, that's that. Now, others, uh, if you have the New American Standard or King James Version, raise your hand. It's okay. Okay, so uh, with that, you'll see in there that actually you'll look through, and there will not be, there's only one period, and that's at the end of verse 8. And, and that sentence reads like a, a lawyer sentence, okay? Now, why am I even going through this? Well, I appreciate the English Standard Version, the New International Version, for kind of making three bite-sized uh, chicken McNugget kind of sentences, sizes. Uh, but when Paul wrote this in the Greek, it's one sentence. It's one long, long sentence, and going back to our definition, definition of a sentence is, is that it's one unified thought. And sometimes when we break it down, while it helps us to kind of down the chicken McNuggets, it also can lead to three McNugget thoughts rather than this illustration is breaking apart rather than the whole chicken thought, okay? You know, whatever, you, you got the idea with that, okay? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna read verses one through eight. One and two is what we covered last Sunday, but when I get to three through eight, um, I'm gonna kinda try and read it as it is, one sentence, verses three through eight. So let's go. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, if you were here last Sunday, that's just a pause and like, are you crazy kidding me? How cool is that? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, got a work story there. And Timothy, our brother, got a work story there. 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace. By the way, grace to you and peace, not from Paul, but from God, our Father relationship. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, or he, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Hey, God, I just pray as we dig into this one sentence today, and really, we're going to kind of be digging into the first part of this sentence. God, I just pray we would grab a hold of you. God, would you just help us to see you more? Help us to see you bigger? Lord, we're here to worship you and to hear from you. So word of God, speak. In the precious and supreme name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we have one long lawyer sentence. And part of the question is, oh my word, this thing just goes on forever with semicolons and hyphens and all this kind of stuff going on. What does the sentence actually say? Because in a long sentence, it's kind of like, what in the world's going on here? So I'm a very simple guy and I need things very simple. So I want to simplify it here from the beginning. Uh, verse three, what's it saying? It's saying, we thank, we thank. Uh, that's the action. That's the, the starting main action. If you were kind of to diagram out the sentence, that's the main thing that's happening. They're saying, we thank, and then verse four, uh, since we heard, or because we heard. So the action is, we thank, and we thank because we heard. Everything else in the sentence falls under that reality, okay? So uh, I, again, I, I'm very simple, and I love pictures, so let's move this into picture format, all right? Let's move it into picture format because there's an external thing that's happening driven by an internal thing that's happening. So verse three, the external thing that's happening is Paul is saying, uh, we thank. Uh, thanks is being given. Thanks is what's coming out. And, and then we are thanking because we, are, we have heard something, right? That's what's happening here. So we heard something is happening internally uh, out from the outside. We've heard, we're processing this. We've heard this from Epaphras, the sentence tells us. Epaphras was the layman who actually got this church in Colossae started. And they heard this from Epaphras. And then they, it's resulting in their thanks. Now let's work on this uh, now that we've kind of got the main part of it out. And let's start with not with the thinking part of it. Let's start with the action part that we thanks. Uh, simply, let's work this out. Who gave thanks? Well, it says, we gave thanks. Who's we? The context, verses one and two, it's Paul and Timothy. And it is in the plural form. It's not just Paul, it is in the plural form. So we give thanks, Paul and Timothy give thanks. What's the manner of their thanks? Are they doing their thanks by skywriting, by billboards? Are they doing it by speeches? Are they doing it through the television? What is the manner of their thanks? And the text tells us, uh, when we pray, 
Know this, this is not just a, 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 a thanks given to people, but he's in the context of we're giving thanks when we pray. What's the frequency of their thanks when they pray? Well, it says always when we are praying for you. And there's actually an emphatic in there because praying, the verb is called a present active indicative. It's a presently continuously ongoing action that's happening here. And added to that is we're always doing that when we are always praying for you. And I think that's important because Paul is not saying, hey, you know, last week we thought he and we gave thanks. He's also not saying, you know what, we, we've been praying for you guys 50 times in the last 50 days. And yesterday we gave thanks to you, but all the other days we really weren't thanking much for you because you've been a pain. He's not saying that. He's essentially saying, you are the kind of people that we are always giving thanks when we pray. And who's the object of their thanks? Well, it's for you, for the Colossian believers. Now, final thing that's very important in this. Who's the recipient of their thanks? Who are they giving thanks to? Well, you would think they're giving thanks to the people because the people are the ones who are doing what we're going to talk about here in just a second, the three things we're going to be talking about. Well, they're the ones who are doing it. Isn't he giving thanks directly to them? Well, kind of not. We always give thanks to God when we pray. I want for you to understand this is a vertical thanks. This is not just a horizontal thing. And by the way, notice here, it says God. We, we, we thank God for you. It's interesting. It's in a polytheistic culture. That means they had all kinds of gods. So when someone says we were praying to God for you, it's kind of like what the typical culture would go, which God? Well, one, Paul defines it, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think he's only saying this because of it's a polytheistic culture, although that was the reality of it. But he is also saying this because this book is very what's called Christocentric. It's all about Jesus Christ. Everything keeps pointing to Jesus Christ. And the starting of this letter, we give thanks to God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's like the entrance into where he's going to be going. Now, if you're new to the Bible and not familiar too much with the terminology in English, we think, well, Father, that means God birthed Jesus. So Jesus was like a human who kind of became some prophet or some like crazy divine being or something. No, no, no. That's not what's talking about here. Today is not a time to talk about the whole trinity of it all. When you can get it all figured out, let me know. But in part of it, what the first person of the Trinity is referring to the second person of the Trinity here, Jesus is God in the flesh. So let me say this. God is the recipient of their thanks. This is a vertical given thanks. Vertical given thanks communicated horizontally to people. Why are they thanking God for what these Colossian people are doing? Answer, Turn one page left in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. One page, one screen, whatever form you're using. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 13. Very important sentence. We're actually in the middle of a sentence here, but verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We, We could take the whole time on that. But but simply this, there is nothing, friends, that you and I can ever take credit for. There is no good thing that you have ever done, that I have ever done, that ultimately you and I can take full credit for it. 
Uh, I've said before, uh, people are asking the wrong question in our day and age. The question that's being asked is, why do bad things happen? Well, it's a very simple answer. Bad things happen because we live in a sin-cursed world right now. The right question is, why does anything good ever happen in a sin-cursed world? The reason any good ever happens is because God has allowed good to happen in a sin-cursed world. Because if God pulled himself back, friends, this would be a living hell on earth. Oh, and by the way, in Revelation, that's what God does. Ultimately here, the reason that Paul and Timothy are giving thanks to God is because they have a good theology of people. And the reality is, is that yes, we are about to enter into three things that these people are like spot on, way to go dudes, way to rock it out. And yet Paul and Timothy know that even in it, when they say the thanks for it, they know that it's God doing a work in them to do that. And so before we go into these three things, let me, let me just say this, two takeaways Two takeaways. Give thanks horizontally. Give thanks horizontally, knowing it's all because of what God's done. Give thanks horizontally, but do it in a vertical kind of a way. Hey, parents, I, I, I do trust that you are encouraging your children, that you are thanking them for things. That's a very important thing, and we could spend the whole time about their thank giving of thanks, and we should be people like that, and we should. Uh, but in it here, uh, like let's take our kids. When our kids were younger, uh, Luke and Emily, it could be like, uh, uh, Luke and Emily, uh, way to go, you chose to obey. One of the things we're missing in that is we're missing the vertical reality of a Philippians 2.13 thing. What about something more like this? Luke, Emily, you chose to obey. It's so cool to see God at work in you. Now, imagine if that was day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year after year, and our children would begin building a theology that God is at work in them, and you're not, you're putting it, you're helping them to see God's at work like where? Where's God at work? No, God is. God is at work because you chose to do what's right. Parents, let's do more of that. I would also say in this, believer to believer, small groups, serving teams, a way to go, way to go. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God is at work. Praise the Lord. When, when, when giving it, add those things in, take it vertical, kind of tag God in on the end of the statement so that they know it's not just them. You realize God's doing a work in what they're doing. Uh, give thanks horizontally, knowing it's because of God. And here's another one. Receive thanks horizontally, knowing it's only because of God. I will just say, very transparent, uh, for it took me some years to kind of try and figure out, what do you do when people thank you for things? It's actually sometimes awkward. And um, I don't think I responded well at times when people like, oh, no, 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 no. I just thought, blah, blah, blah. There's something weird, or it's uh, otherwise you end up going, you know what? You are right. I am awesome. <laughs> now, what's with that? Where's theology in that? Where's Philippians 2.13 in that? Instead, I just say this. I think it's the thank you for the kind words of encouragement. Praise the Lord. Thank you for the kind words of encouragement given vertical. 
add that in there. It's good for you. It's good for them. Listen, they are giving thanks to people horizontally, but yet it's in a vertical reality. We thank, we thank. Well, let's move on. We thank because of what they heard. What did they hear? Three things they heard. How many things? Okay, number one, we heard of, look at the text, we heard of your faith. Verse four, since we heard of your faith. General definition of faith, again, this is just a Webster's Dictionary kind of definition. It's placing complete trust or confidence in something or someone. Isn't that interesting? Even a, we'll call it a secular definition of faith, is not saying it's a leap in the dark. It's not saying it's just blind faith. It's not just saying like, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. That's not what it is. And biblically, in the word here, the word for faith is pistis here in the Greek. And in this word, this has even a deeper meaning than that. There is no biblical faith that is a leap in the dark, willy-nilly, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. You just don't see that in Scripture. That's not the idea here. It's about placing your complete trust and your confidence in Uh, In fact, look at the word, uh, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith, in what? In who? In Christ Jesus. By the way, it's not faith in a belief system. It's not faith in a doctrinal statement or creed. It's not faith in, in, in church. It's not faith in a denomination. I mean, can you imagine, you know, one day when you're standing before the pearly gates and there Jesus is before, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, well I'm a Catholic. Well, I'm a Methodist. Well, I'm a Lutheran. Well, I'm a Baptist. Well, I'm a non-denominationalist. And? And? I think Jesus is going to be going, and? So why should I let you in? Uh, It's not about a denomination. It's not about even baptism. It's not about personal preference. It's not about one's ideology. It's not about what your family believed, what your parents believed. It's not about a philosophy. It's not about believing in a higher power. Because if I remember the scriptures, even the demons believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And if I have my theology correct, uh, demons have not repented. It's not even a belief in a belief, and it's not faith in faith. What's your faith in? Well, I just have faith in faith. Like, what's your faith? Well, it's just a faith. Uh, None of those are what it's talking about. What is faith then, Doug? Hang a right, a few pages to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's just let Scripture define what faith is, because it does. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is, (laughs) doesn't get more clear than that, we've got a definition. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't want to break all into the the Greek terminology here, but let me just put it this way. This is not willy-nilly, oh I hope, golly gee, wish, I wish. This is not leap in the dark faith. This is not blind faith. This is not ignorant faith. This is not, I believe it just because, I don't know, like, I believe it. You can see here in the terminology, it's about an assured reality. There's an assurance in this. And that word has the idea of both these words together, of of it being substantiated. Can you substantiate your faith? Because that's what this is talking about. 
an assured faith, a, faith, a, a convicted faith where there's an assurance and, and a substantiation of it. There's a, a known level of proof in it all. Oh, and by the way, in it all, it has this idea that it shows it shows its evidenced faith, faith that is evidence-based in its knowledge and faith that is evidence-based in its living. Well, that's what I believe. Does that show in you? That's what my faith is. Does it show in you? Show me the meat to it all. The scripture talks about, that's what James talks about, a faith without works is dead. Biblical faith begins with a confident, assured, clear understanding that I'm a sinner standing before a holy God and I'm separated because of my sin. And I need to repent of that and I need to anchor myself. I need to cling to Jesus Christ and what he has done because I cannot save myself. Only by placing my trust, placing my faith in him, by driving that stake in the ground and anchoring myself to Jesus Christ, only then can I be able to have a relationship with the Lord. And then that should show. I want to press into you. If, if you go back and you say, you know, maybe when I was 10 years old or 8 years old or some point in time, I, I kind of did a religious spiritual uh, uh, experience, and, and out of that, now that I look back over these last 10 years or five years or 50 years, I see no fruit in my life of that. I'm just banking everything on a statement I made. I press into you and say, I question whether you have faith in Jesus Christ. I question your redemption. Doug, how can you do that? Go to Matthew chapter 7, because that's what Jesus said. Many will call me Lord, Lord, but I will say I never knew you. Why? Because there was no evidence of faith. There was no changed life in it. And it is a reality. Faith is a real thing. It's not knowing about the Lord. It's not observing the Lord. It's not admiring Jesus Christ. It's an assured reality with substantiated conviction that is cognitively, purposely, by the grace of God, anchoring myself to Jesus Christ, and it's got legs to it through my life. So I ask, where have you anchored your life? I mean, for real. Come on, let's cut the game. Where have you anchored your life? Look back at the last month. Look back at the last three months. What does it show you have anchored your life to? Uh, Doug, I'm not into this religious stuff, so I haven't anchored myself to anything. No, you have. Everybody has. Everybody has. Anchored to science? Anchored to academics or intellect? Anchored to your own works? Well, I'm not a mass murderer. Anchored to your beliefs? Let me just try and carefully say this. Um, some years ago, quite a few years ago, I was at a funeral um, of a family that I'll just say it was pretty evidence that they did not know the Lord. And um, at the funeral, they, the discussion with, through these families, and only the Lord knows that. I, I hope they did. But in there, I remember just being there, and they were saying, I'm just so, I'm just, he's in a better place. And uh, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, based on what? 
really? Based on what? What do you even base the idea of a heaven on? Well, just because we're in America and that's what we believe. But, but wait, wait a second, seriously. Based on what? Well, that's just what I believe. Well, where's the assurance? Where's the deep-seated conviction? Like, where's the cognitive understanding in that? Friends, that's a Jiminy Cricket I wish. Doug, let me push back on you. Why do you believe this whole Jesus thing? Awesome, I love the questions. Game on. Here we go. Four reasons. And I just want to encourage you to kind of, what is your faith coming? Because these were things in my 20s that became massively significant for me because I was questioning, am I just doing this thing because this is what my parents grew me up with? Am I just doing my parents' thing or I, is this my thing? And so here's four things. Uh, evidence in the book. Evidence in the book. Friends, this book, the Bible, is unlike any other Bible in all of human history. Doug, prove it to me. Give me some evidence. Game on. Okay, because the Quran, the Mormon Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, the Buddha Bible, all other Bibles have one main human uh, authorial source in it. All of them have one main human authorial writer in it. And I just go, really, really? You want to trust everything on what one person says? May I remind you the Bible has over 40 authors. And they all jive. Uh, uh, by the way, along with that idea, the Quran, the Mormon Bible, the Jehovah's Witness Bible, the Buddha Bible, all of them are written in one life period of time because it's by one human author. The Bible was written over 1,500 years. Friends, I am telling you, the Bible is unlike any other spiritual written authority on the face of the earth, just in those facts alone. Oh, and let me add this one other thing. What those books also teach is all of them, when it comes right down to it, they are on a works-oriented system. Only the Bible, only the Bible says you cannot earn your way to God. But God has come down and by grace has provided a way for you to be redeemed. All the others are about you working to God. I'm telling you, the book is unlike any book that I have ever come to study and understand. And it just doesn't stop there. Evidence in the book and evidence in the math. Evidence in the math. The manuscripts for this literary piece of work, the preservation and accuracy of the Bible is stunning. Here's the math. Homer's Iliad. Uh, any historical literary person would not doubt the accuracy of Homer's Iliad. Let me give you some numbers. Homer's Iliad was written in 900 B.C., the very first or the latest manuscript copy that we have was, in, is, was written in 400 BC, 904. And how many years is that? I'm slow in math. 500 years. Between when it was wrote and between the oldest manuscript copy that we have. One of the impressive things about Homer's Iliad, why I bring it up, is because it has a triple digit number of manuscript copies, 643 manuscript copies over the years that we have put together. And they, in their, in their science of it all, have come down to that they are 95% manuscript copy accuracy to what we have. We are 95% sure that what Homer wrote, that sounds weird today, Homer. What Homer wrote back in 900 BC that we have 95% accuracy with what we have today. Now let's talk about the New Testament. I won't even bring in the Old Testament. Let's just do the New Testament game. 
with the New Testament. The New Testament was written in 50 to 95 AD. The earliest manuscript copy that we have is right around 130 AD. That means there's less than 100 years between when it was written and the copies that we have. Iliad, 500 Now, while three-digit number of manuscript copies were impressive with Homer's Iliad, the Bible has four digits, 5,600 manuscript copies of the New Testament alone. That's eight and a half times more manuscript copies we have today of the scriptures than of Homer's Iliad. And they view it that as it's those manuscript copies are 99.5% accuracy. And then today you hear the talk like you just can't trust the Bible. Baloney, my friends. Let's keep doing the math. Uh, The Bible says that there is a Messiah, so let's do that. Uh, Back in uh, Dr. Peter Stoner in the early 1900s, Dr. Peter Stoner, he was a PhD astrophysicist uh, from Cornell University, professor of emeritus of science at Westmont College. He grabbed all of his PhD students in a massive project in the early 1900s to be able to have them do the statistics on what it was for an odds for a person to be able to fulfill the prophecies that they have about the biblical Messiah. Here are the numbers. The odds of one person fulfilling eight of the major uh, Old Testament prophecies uh, of uh, Messiah, just eight of them, those would be like born in Bethlehem, obviously it was not the virgin birth, that would kind of set it aside, that was supposed to be funny. Um, Eight prophecies of the Messiah, the odds are one in 10 to the 17th power, which looks like that, that's the numbers, hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, yeah, a bigger number. Uh, How do we grab a hold of that number? Uh, Take one quarter, fill the state of Texas knee deep with quarters, have that one quarter randomly mixed within all the quarters in the state of Texas, You are given a helicopter and blindfolded helicopter. Someone else will fly for you. You go anywhere you want in the state of Texas. Parachute out. That'd be interesting. Parachute out blindfolded. Parachute out and then you land and anywhere in the state of Texas, you can go. You can grab the top of the stack at your knees down to the bottom. But the first quarter that you grab, bam, that's the one that was marked. That's one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, uh, Stoner went and he worked it on more. What about filling 48 of the prophecies? That's 10 times 1 to the 157th. That looks like this. Doug, I can't even comprehend that number. I agree with you, so let's comprehend it this way. An electron, you mark one electron. Electron's one of the smallest items that we know about. You mark an electron, you throw it out into the known universe. All of the electrons in the known universe blind for yourself, get in a rocket. You can go anywhere you want in the known universe. Reach out the rocket window. However that works. It's all theory, okay? You reach out the window, you grab one electron, and the chance of you grabbing the one that was marked is one in 10 to the 157th power. That's the odds of one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies of the Messiah. And guess what? There are three hundred plus prophecies in the scriptures of the Messiah and Jesus fulfilled them all. Do the math. That's why, one of the reasons why I believe in this whole reality because it is 
Do the math. That's the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. Let me just add to this. Evidence in the apostles. They all died martyrs. You would just think one of them would bag out if it was a joke. Well, Judas, he did. No, he didn't. He ended up killing himself because he knew what he did was wrong. They all died martyrs for what they saw. That's just one more piece of the puzzle. The last one, evidence in the heart of man. Anthropologists go all around the world. They go all around the world. They find out what people believe and what they believe. And, and everybody has this thing where they're looking for a divine creator. It's just in the heart of man. And I'll just add with this, you just cannot convince me as a man who wants to work off of data and information, you cannot convince me that we are all just here by some non-God act, some random act of mutation of cells and we're all just here living and we're gonna live and we're gonna die and then we're gonna be gone. Come on, man, I don't buy it, I don't buy it, I don't buy it. Hey, let me press into you. Is your faith anchored? Or are you just winging it? Because it's time to stop winging it if that's you. You don't have to wing it. You can know with assurance because of what this book says, because of who Jesus Christ is, and because of what God has done. Friends, that is the foundation of a faith in Christ Jesus. Solid, secure, don't play games with me, man. And this is not crutch living. This is not blind faith living. This is not leap in the dark living. This is for real. And Paul's like... Thank you, God, there are people in Colossae that are living evidenced faith for you. We heard of your faith. Oh, man, sorry, I've got to keep going. I get so cranked up about that. Next, quickly, we heard of your love. We heard of your love. By the way, just went past Valentine's Day. You know, you write all the little heart cards, and Karen's doing piano lessons, and one of her students was in our family room writing all the little heart cards to all the, everybody in their class, and it just brought back memories, you know, Valentine's Day, and love, 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 love. Our definition of love nowadays is just this warm, fuzzy feeling, isn't it? You know, it's a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling that you don't know what you just feel in love. <laughs> Hey, biblical love is not first and foremost a feeling. I am not saying that it's not a feeling. But biblical love is first and foremost not a feeling. One of the reasons I say that is because you cannot command people to feel. Feel angry. You can't do that. Uh, but the Bible talks about love as an action first. Doug, prove it. Game on. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he felt warm and fuzzy feelings. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5a, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ felt a warm, fuzzy feeling for us. No, 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 Christ died for us. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, that's, that's a fantastic part of it, but that's not the goal of it. The text says, love, wife, love your wife like Christ walking down the Via Della Rosa to his death for his bride. That's the kind of love. It's an action love. 
It's a, it's a, even if I don't feel the feelings, you can love. I don't have to feel warm feelings for you, and yet I can biblically love you full out. Because love is an action. And look at the text. It's a love specifically for all the saints. We're not talking about love world peace. Paul wasn't talking about love personal peace. Paul wasn't talking about loving kittens. Paul was talking about loving the saints. Loving those who have been redeemed in Christ. Loving God's people. Here's the deal. Typical love is a love for self. Typical love is a love for self. A divine love, a God love, is about a love for other people. By the way, look at the end of verse 8. Love in the spirit. Biblical love is a God-driven thing. It's not just a feeling you feel and now I'm going to love. No, it's a knowledge that these are my people. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are my peeps and God says I am to love them with action. That's why people were here at 5 a.m. this morning shoveling snow for you and I. Praise the Lord for God working in them to love us like that. This is about a love for the saints, and just cut to the chase. Do you love the people in this room? Biblically. Doug, I don't even know them. I mean, frankly, I look over here, and then I look over there, and I'm not feeling too many warm, fuzzy feelings. No, no, no. Biblically, do you love the people in this room? Well, Doug, I've only been here for like a month. That's okay. Do you biblically love the people in this room? Love is an action. You see, self-love is the kind of thing where it's, I'll do what I want to do and serve where I want to serve. That's loving me. Biblical love says, where do, I, where do you need to serve? Because I want to serve God's people. Do, do you see what I'm saying? And Paul is like, way to go, Colossians. Way to go. Because you are the kind of real deal people that love God's people. Bam. And that last part was a sentence. <laughs> love people. Now, I realize I'm pressing into you, and I'm kind of pressing into you hard. I'm pressing into you about your faith, and I'm pressing into you about your faith in Christ and your love for other people. I realize that. So hang with me here from this, because the third thing is the gold. Maybe right now you may be in tuck. Could you just stop beating on me and making me feel like a loser? Okay, I will. This last one is literally the hope. Your faith and love and how it's showing and living out in you from the text tells us comes out of this. If you want to grow in your faith in Christ, listen to this last one. If you want to grow in loving God's people more, listen to this last one. Here we go. Got to get to the right book. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope. Now, that terminology is absolutely critical. They heard of their hope. Now, faith 
Love and hope are a biblical triad. They, they interact together in scripture. They're not independent of each other, but they are actually inseparably linked to each other. And yet they're unique in their own way. There's perfect unity, perfect u- uniqueness in all of these three. And that is shown in the fact like 1 Corinthians 13, it says, talks about faith and hope. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, because of the point of it all, it says love is the greatest of these. That was not saying forget about faith, forget about hope. It's just bringing in this angle of on love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. There's uniqueness in each of those. Here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 5, it states something unique about hope. And hear me on this. Hear me on this. In verse 5, hope is causal. It is causal. What does that mean? That means hope has a causing influence on faith and love. Let me say that again. Hope has a causing influence on faith in Christ. And hope has a causing influence link to loving other people, God's people. Now, it's not saying that hope is the initial producer of faith or love. It's not saying that. But hope is the causal base of faith and love. And you can see that English Standard Version, New American Standard Version, it says because of. It's building out of. The New International Version says faith and love that spring from hope. I actually like that. It's kind of a trying to get the idea across. So it's like, if you want some more spring in your faith... <laughs> Your spring in your face coming from hope. If you want more spring in your love for, boy, I look like a bunny rabbit. For love for, for other people, it's look at hope. What's your hope? What do you hope in, I'm asking you? Look at what the text says. It just doesn't say hope like willy-nilly or general. It doesn't even say hope generally in God. Look at this. Hope because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you've heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you through Epaphras. It's growing and expanding, but it's a hope that's laid up for you in heaven. There's a uniqueness about this. Paul Tripp says, hope is one of the most formative quests of human existence. And hope has a desire and an object. Let me give you some examples. Uh, I, I desire security. Nothing's wrong with desiring security. Uh, but here's what ends up happening. The object t- often becomes, I desire security, so my object of my hope is money because I won't be without money. Or my object of my security is control. Or the object of my security is a long-lasting marriage or relationship. Or here's another one. I desire security, so the object of my security is a gun. Nothing's wrong with a gun. Nothing's wrong with marriage. Nothing's wrong with any of these things. Hang on with me just for a second. I desire respect. So the object of my respect also becomes money because then people will respect me or becomes my title. I'm the CEO. I'm the president. Or it becomes a house. Or it becomes grades in school. I desire love, so the object of my love becomes my spouse, or the object of my love becomes being able to have a spouse, or the object of my love becomes my children. They are what provide me hope. They are what provide me love. Or the object of my desire for love is having parents that love me, whether I'm young or whether I'm old. The point is, what you hope in drives how you view and do life. 
And know this, God has wired you and I to hope. God has wired you and I, has wired mankind to have a hope. So it's not that there's a desire, that a desire is not wrong. A desire, a hope is from God. The issue is where do we put our hope? Most of the things that we put our hope in disappoint because they are here and now things. Because here and now things were never intended to be our hope things. And so what we do is we load all our hopes and our dreams onto the temporary shoulders of situations and locations and positions and relationships. And hear me, it's unfair to do that. You cannot put all of your hopes on a person that's not fair to them because they cannot satisfy the hope desire that God has put within you and I. They are not here to fill that hope satisfying desire that you have. They can't do it because we live in a sin cursed world and even if redeemed we are sin cursed people and God put a hope desire for hope in us that was only intended to be fulfilled by a hope in him and him alone. And so I just uh, lovingly, I say, quit looking for hope that's laid up in this world. And do understand, I am so preaching at me right now. Quit looking for your hope in this world. It can't be found here. Stop asking temporary things to be your forever hope. You will always be disappointed. It's laid up for you in heaven. Laid up. It means reserved. If you are in Christ... You have something so magnificent waiting for you that you and I, we can't even begin to try and fathom it, but do. Try and fathom it. We need to fathom it. We need to work it out. Because listen to me, we need to be living like a layaway reality. Layaway. You go to Walmart, you buy a bicycle, you put it in layaway. Bam, put my name. Doug Helmer, my name's on that bike. And and, uh, here's the deal. It's mine, right? Right? (laughs) I'm not setting you up, okay? It is my bike (laughs) because it's got my name on it. It's mine. It's held in layaway. And the fact that it's being held in layaway right now changes how I live right now because I could take the 10 bucks from this week and we could go out and we could, I don't know, eat a hot fudge chocolate sundae. But I'm not because I'm holding it for that. So how I view and I do life now is impacted by what's laid away for me. And here the text is saying there is a hope for you if you know Jesus Christ that is sitting, waiting for you. And the days that we have here, this is a dot in a line reality. The length of our life here, it's a dot, you guys. It's a dot compared to eternity. And yet, doggone it, 
Don't we have the hardest time living the line? A hope that's laid up for you in heaven. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't even have a hope. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm trying to love on you. But if you are in Jesus Christ, I ask you, are you living by the hope that's been laid up? Or are you living just like everyone else that we oftentimes do? A hope laid up in heaven. And let me note, the hope is not a place. The hope is a person. You see, there is a God, there is a Savior that we are going to be with forever in the place that's called heaven. And it's stunning. And this life, we don't just make it through. We live this life in light of that. And so I say to you, if you look and you go, man, I've got a wishy-washy faith, I want to say to you, I've probably got a wishy-washy hope. And by firming up your hope biblically on what God has promised and what God is holding true, your faith comes out of that. If you're like, well, I don't want to love other people. I want to love me. No, no, no. Listen, you've got to get a hold of the hope, the laid up hope for you and I, because I'm going to tell you, when you start getting sight of that, it changes how we live now. I've gone long. Let me wrap it up. So what have you been hooking your hope on? Seriously, I mean for real. What have you been hooking your hope on? What's the thing on your horizon that has been driving you to do what you've been doing this last week? God created you and I to hope, but it's to hope in him. And all hope outside of our future forever will disappoint, friends. It will fall and it will fail. Listen to a few passages and we'll finish. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, because he caused us to be born again to a living hope, an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In this, in other words, in that rejoice, and by the way, right after that, it goes on to say, even though now for a little while you've been grieved with various trials. Hey, if you're in a trial right now, if you're in a hard relationship right now, if you're in a hard work situation right now, a hard finance situation right now, please, I'm not trying to say don't worry, don't be concerned about those things or don't have emotions about those. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying, know this, in the difficulty, it's gonna be gone in a while. 
and we will be eternity with the Lord. Amen. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your sins upon sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you've been redeemed in Christ, you're seated, you're raised. I'm telling you, man, there's hope. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. You may be going, Doug, I'm not feeling no light and I'm not feeling no momentary. I am feeling affliction. But this is spoken on an eternity view. For this, it is light comparatively. It is momentary comparatively affliction. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. Bam. God, thank you for hope. Oh, we desperately need it. You've wired us to be a people that hope. Oh, God, we need hope. But we don't need hope in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We don't need hope in good grades or a husband or a wife. We don't need hope in our children getting out of diapers or getting out of high school. We don't need the hope of money. We don't need the hope of a home. None of those things are wrong. All of those things are real. All of those things have an important reality to them. But they are not our hope. Only you. And yet, Lord, you know you've lived among us. You know how we struggle. You know how I struggle to hope in you. Oh God, I just pray for all of us in here that we would just go to your word and seek out that increasing hope, that confidence, that insurance of who you are, and then it would be deep and real and true to our hearts, convinced and convicted and, and, and even to jail, even to martyrdom. And until that day when we see you face to face, God, may we endure. May we not just sit back and wait for that, but may we be bold in this time. May we have faith in you, God, help us in that. And may we be a people that love your people, springing out of the hope of what's been laid up for us. Oh God, you are awesome. And so now we conclude our time by reflecting on the grandeur of you, by being reminded of the greatness of you. Because what's laid up for us in heaven is all about what you have done and who you are. So I pray God as we sing this song, we'd sing it with passion.
In the fantastic, supreme name of Jesus Christ, we pray, right? Amen.